Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about Catherine Dexter McCormick. She was a graduate of MIT at a time when the school did not admit many women at all. She was also a big part of the movement for women's suffrage in the United States, and she was a huge and for a while almost entirely forgotten part of the development of oral contraceptives. So usually when we do uh, biographical episodes, we do a mostly chronological account of a person's life, but various parts of Catherine Dexter McCormick's life and her accomplishments overlap each other a lot. So it makes a little more sense this time. We're going to spend the first portion of the episode talking about her personal life, her upbringing, her education. Then we will move on to her work toward getting women the right to vote in the United States. And we will finish with her nearly single-handed funding of the development of oral contraceptives. So in addition to the discussion of contraception that's going to be part of today's episode... McCormick's husband had a number of mental health issues, and the nature of them might not be suitable for our most young listeners. Catherine Dexter McCormick was born Catherine Moore Dexter on August 27th of 1875 in Dexter, Michigan. The name of the town was no coincidence. It had been founded by her grandfather. Her parents, Wirt and Josephine Dexter, actually lived in Chicago, but Josephine had gone to Dexter to have the baby and to be looked after by Wirt's mother. In Chicago, Wirt McCormick was a lawyer, and both he and his father had been abolitionists, and this was an enterprise that Wirt's grandmother had also participated in by hiring people who were fleeing north and employing them until they could be more permanently settled. Catherine's mother was also a supporter of the suffrage movement and an advocate for what was at the time referred to as prudent sex. In other words, contraception, which at this point was both illegal and socially extremely discouraged. The Dexters were an extremely affluent and prominent family with branches in Boston, Dexter, Michigan, and Chicago. They could trace their roots back to Massachusetts Colony all the way to 1642, and they worked their way into positions of wealth as well as local and even national influence essentially everywhere they lived. They were basically a an affluent, very powerful family. And Catherine herself was a smart, studious serious child, and she was considered by the adults around her to be very mature for her age. These traits cemented themselves in her personality after the sudden death of her father following a severe heart attack when she was only 14. After her father's death, Catherine and her mother relocated to Boston, where she was expected to study art and literature, because that was the customary education path for a young woman in Boston's affluent society. But when it was time to enroll in secondary school, Catherine, in part because of her father's death, insisted on studying science. Eventually, Catherine and her mother compromised, and she was allowed to go to a finishing school that had a very good academic reputation. In May of 1894, Catherine's older brother, Sam, who was just starting his own law career, died suddenly and unexpectedly of spinal meningitis. Catherine was just a few months shy of her 19th birthday. Catherine's mother was understandably distraught. Catherine was heartbroken as well, but also angry. 
Having lost both her brother and her father, both under the care of doctors who were powerless to help them, it just made her furious. She became even more determined to pursue a career as a scientist, although she put that effort on hold for 18 months to accompany her bereft mother in Europe on the trip that Josephine had arranged to try to escape her grief. Catherine resumed her education in November of 1895 when she and her mother returned to Boston. She first spent a few months studying at a local college, but she left because she didn't find their material very new or challenging to her. She started looking for a better school and considered attending both Harvard and Radcliffe. She finally decided on the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, then known as Boston Tech. She chose MIT in spite of warnings that it made it hard for women students to study there. As of 1896, when McCormick began pursuing her admission to MIT, only 44 women were enrolled, and only one had ever graduated from there. Catherine did pass her entrance exams, but because her education had been in a finishing school, she was required to take a number of other preparatory classes before she could start her real degree work. So even though she had passed the exam, she had to basically redo the same courses of study for classes that were considered legitimate. She worked on all of these classes from 1896 until 1899, and then finally enrolled as a regular student at the age of 25. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in biology in 1904. As one example of her life at MIT, the school's policies of the day required ladies to wear hats. McCormick refused, citing the fact that the feathers that were fashionable on ladies' hats were in fact a fire hazard when they were worn in the lab. She finally got the chemistry department to repeal that rule, not just for her, but for all female students. Catherine's original plan after graduation had been to study to become a surgeon. However, just before the start of her senior year, she became reacquainted with Stanley McCormick. The Dexters and the McCormicks had connections that went back for decades, Stanley's father, Cyrus McCormick, owned International Harvester Company, which had been founded by his father, the inventor of the mechanical harvester. When Stanley's father's factory was severely damaged in the Great Chicago Fire, it was Catherine's father, who was at the helm of a relief program to rebuild the city, who convinced him not to move his business elsewhere. Catherine and Stanley had first met at a ball in 1889 when Catherine was just 13 and Stanley was 14. Then, 16 years later, on September 1st, 1903, they were both coincidentally at a resort outside of Boston known as Beverly Farms. Stanley immediately picked up their friendship as though they had never been apart, even though Catherine actually found this a little odd and off-putting. It was awfully familiar, given behavior expectations at the time. Also a little familiar was that within a month, Stanley had proposed to her. Catherine, however, was afraid that her ambition to become a surgeon would be impossible as if she got married. Nonetheless, she eventually accepted. Then she broke it off. Then she accepted again. Then she broke it off again. She wound up ending their engagement three times before they eventually got married. Stanley, for his part, was passionate and persistent, even going so far as to go to Geneva uninvited after Catherine had called off one of their engagements in an effort to try to win her back. Aside from this ardor, Catherine found some of his behavior troubling and erratic. 
For example, he became obsessed about the fact that he had masturbated, and he was terrified that this had somehow ruined his potential to be a husband. But in spite of all of that, the pair finally married on September 15th of 1904. Yeah, there were, there were clearly a lot of different factors going into Catherine's uh, perpetual ending of their engagements and her reluctance to get married to him. But she does seem to have genuinely loved him and in his more stable moments found him to be a nice, delightful person to be around. However, after their marriage, it became clear almost immediately that Stanley was really not in good mental health. The McCormick family was also reported to just be extremely dysfunctional. Stanley's father was described as a tyrant and his mother as a religious zealot. His older sister was in full-time care due to her own mental illness, and biographers have described his other siblings as sociopaths. Catherine hoped that removing Stanley from Chicago and from his family's influence and all of the pressures of their unhealthy family dynamics would help him recover. Instead, just two years into their marriage, his condition deteriorated to the point that he had to be hospitalized. He was admitted to McLean Hospital for the Insane, and he was diagnosed with dementia praecox of the catatonic type, schizophrenia basically, at the age of 32. He was later moved to Riven Rock, which is an estate in California that had actually been purchased for the care of his older sister, who had since been moved to a sanitarium. That one description... He had a family that had bought an estate to provide care for his mentally ill older sister sort of encapsulates a lot of stuff about the McCormick family. Catherine's efforts to take care of Stanley would be a huge part of the rest, most of the rest of her life. And it was also a source of strain between her and his family. She and the McCormicks had major differences of opinion in how he should be cared for and treated. This battle was huge and ugly, and sometimes it was extremely public, uh, to the point that it took all of them to court on more than one occasion and was frequently covered as a scandal in the newspapers. Compounding the situation was that Stanley's behavior toward women in particular was so alarming and inappropriate that he could actually only be cared for by male doctors and nurses. For about 20 years, Catherine generally only saw her husband from afar, from some vantage point where he could not see her. However, even as doctors and his family suggested repeatedly that she divorce him or get an annulment, Catherine refused to give up her role in Stanley's life and care. One reason was that she really believed his family were part of the problem and that they did not have his best interests at heart when making decisions on his behalf. But she had also been powerless to stop the the sudden deaths of her father and her brother. And so that was probably also part of what drove her to continue to be married to Stanley and to try to find the best care for him. We're not going to talk about the details here, uh, but Stanley's care and the disputes surrounding it were ongoing for more than 40 years. Gaps in Catherine's advocacy work were often due to some kind of crisis with Stanley or his family or his team of doctors. It was basically an underlying layer of Catherine's life right up until Stanley's death. After a brief word from one of our great sponsors, we are going to talk about Catherine Dexter McCormick's role in the suffrage movement. Catherine Dexter McCormick's first involvement in the movement for women's suffrage was while she was still in college. 
She joined the College Equal Suffrage League, which had been formed by students from Radcliffe, Wellesley, and Boston College. McCormick was the first MIT student to join. Through the 19-teens, she was also active in the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Alliance, where she toured cities and towns in Massachusetts to raise support for women's right to vote. This included, at one point, speaking from the water in Boston Harbor when police refused to allow the crowd to congregate on the beach. She was also a big part of keeping the Massachusetts branch of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, or NAWSA, financially afloat. As that organization got bigger, it had some trouble making its ends meet, in part because not all of the new members paid their their dues on time. McCormick's work in record-keeping and sometimes having the awkward conversations, getting people to pay their delinquent dues, got the organization back on track. She eventually became treasurer of the organization and a member of its board. Carrie Chapman Catt, who helped found the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, recruited McCormick to join that organization as well. She'd heard McCormick speak and thought her speaking and writing abilities, plus her fluency in multiple languages, would make her a good choice to become the organization's corresponding secretary. McCormick was eventually elected to that position. In addition to doing extensive work, speaking, writing, traveling, and working within these organizations, McCormick also made a number of financial contributions to the suffrage movement, including bailing out one of the one organization's magazine that had fallen into debt. In contrast to recent podcast subject Safiya Duleep Singh, whose support of increasingly radical arms of the suffrage movement in Britain was unwavering, McCormick was not in favor of more radical or militant demonstrations. For example, after being asked for a donation to the suffrage movement, Helen McGill White, who was the first woman in the United States to earn a Ph.D., wrote a letter to the New York Times decrying the more militant suffragettes in Britain. White's letter ran under the headline, Upbraid Suffragists, Since They Condone Outrages, Mrs. White Refuses Cash. McCormick, writing in her capacity as treasurer of the NAWSA, responded in a letter published under the headline, On Militant Women. Treasurer of National Suffrage Body Says It Is Dumb. I just want to take a moment to point out, neither of these women wrote these headlines. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Editors at the New York Times did. Uh, in her letter, McCormick said, quote, whatever may be the opinions held by our members, the fact remains that the National Association is not a militant suffrage association, that there is no militant suffrage association among our many branches. Moreover, the work we are doing will bear any scrutiny which may be directed upon it from those holding Mrs. White's point of view. These opinions held by the NAWSA's members are an oblique reference to Alice Paul. These letters came out about a month after Paul's 1913 women's suffrage parade in Washington, D.C., which led to a confrontation with police. Along with many of the NAWSA's younger members, Paul was willing to take more aggressive steps to try to get more immediate results for women's rights. Paul eventually split off from the NAWSA and formed her own organization, the Congressional Union, in 1914, taking the NAWSA's more militant members with her. The schism between the two organizations widened, with Paul wanting more militant actions for more immediate change, while the NAWSA was willing to work more gradually and less confrontationally, and with McCormick supporting the NAWSA's prevailing opinion. 
That same year, McCormick was elected first vice president of the NAWSA, where one of the tasks before her was to revitalize the organization following the loss of Paul and some of its members. She organized fundraising. She fine-tuned their logistics. She tried to truly separate their aims from the congressional unions, and she put together plans to lobby in states that had not yet passed suffrage bills for women. The NAWSA and the rest of the movement saw the results of their efforts in women gaining the right to vote in an increasing number of states, culminating in the 19th Amendment, which was ratified in 1920. After another brief sponsor break, we will talk about McCormick's work in the world of contraception. Once the 19th Amendment had been ratified, Catherine Dexter McCormick continued to be involved with women's voting rights through the League of Women Voters, including serving as its vice president. But once women had the right to vote, she had the time and energy to focus on other matters, and one of those was contraception. McCormick had several reasons for being interested in contraception. As we noted at the top of the show, quote, prudent sex was something that her mother had supported. At the time, schizophrenia was believed to be an inherited condition, with children of schizophrenic parents certain to develop schizophrenia themselves. So even though McCormick was not having a physical relationship with her husband, she could easily see the importance of couples preventing pregnancy for health reasons. But it was not just about medical necessity. McCormick genuinely felt that women needed to be able to control their own bodies and decide for themselves when or whether to get pregnant. There could not possibly be equality between the sexes in her mind as long as women's bodies and lives could be derailed by unplanned pregnancies and unplanned children. McCormick met birth control activist Margaret Sanger in Boston in 1917 at a trial of a man who had been arrested for distributing Sanger's pamphlets on birth control. At the time, these pamphlets and other information about contraception were considered to be obscenity under the Comstock Act, a very broad federal statute that outlawed obscene literature. Information about abortion and contraception were classified as obscene under the law. After meeting Sanger and at her request, McCormick started smuggling diaphragms back from her trips to Europe. Diaphragms were illegal in the United States, but they were legal in parts of Europe. And unlike condoms, they were a form of contraception that women could control for themselves. McCormick would take advantage of her family's chateau outside of Geneva, her fluency in several languages, and her money to do this. She would go to Europe, travel, and pose as a scientist, drawing on her knowledge of biology acquired at MIT. She would buy up huge numbers of diaphragms and then have them sewn into the linings and pockets of garments so that she could smuggle them back into the United States. She did this with more than 1,000 diaphragms, and although the records are unclear, most of this was probably funded with her own money. Through the 1920s, McCormick was involved in birth control advocacy, going to meetings and conferences, and using her knowledge of biology to study reproduction. She also dedicated some of her mental and financial resources to endocrine research, having become convinced that her husband's mental health issues were really due to a malfunctioning endocrine system. She actually established the Neuroendocrine Research Foundation at Harvard Medical School in 1927, and she funded other research into the endocrine system as well. And as sort of a side note, she established a hospital for the mentally ill at Worcester State Hospital. Through the 1930s, attitudes in the United States were very gradually warmed toward the idea of legal contraception. 
Although the Catholic Church lobbied hard against it, some states began to repeal their obscenity laws or pass specific exemptions for birth control literature. In 1937, the American Medical Association reversed an earlier decision and came out in support of artificial contraception under a doctor's supervision and as part of a marriage. In 1938, Margaret Sanger announced that she was forming a Citizens Committee for Planned Parenthood, which would later become the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. She continued her birth control advocacy, and McCormick was, a, was vocal in her support of it as well even as it drew criticism from the press, her mother, and Stanley's family. But in 1947, Stanley McCormick, by then one of the only two surviving McCormick siblings, died. A handwritten will, dated the day of their wedding, was found in Stanley's safe deposit box, giving his whole estate to his wife. Lawyers told Stanley's remaining sister that this will could not be contested, and Catherine Dexter McCormick inherited the entire McCormick estate. It took her five years to settle the whole estate, pay all the taxes, divest herself of the harvester business and all of Stanley's property. But once all of that was done, she basically turned her sole focus to contraception. At this point, although popular support for birth control was increasing, funding to create a reliable contraceptive was almost non-existent. On June 8, 1953, McCormick and Sanger met with Dr. Gregory Pincus at the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology in Worcester, Massachusetts. He'd been researching hormones' effect on contraception, and Sanger believed he could develop an effective contraceptive. McCormick wrote him a check. It's a little unclear exactly how many dollars she eventually gave him, but she basically wound up uh, funding all of the work of Dr. Pincus, which was carried out in conjunction with Dr. Min Chu Chang and other doctors and researchers, almost single-handedly. Sometimes she funneled these funds through Planned Parenthood for tax reasons. And she also kept an extremely careful eye on the project, carefully reviewing their progress, very persistently coaxing and sometimes prodding it <laughs> along She was 75 years old, and she was adamant that she see a working version of the pill in her lifetime. Pincus and team eventually started testing their combined oral contraceptive pill on human subjects. And to be clear, some of the testing and development methods used do not meet today's ethical standards. For example, some were conducted on patients at an asylum. Others were conducted out of existing birth control clinics in Puerto Rico, but the women enrolled in the trial were often desperate to prevent pregnancy and not necessarily made aware of the drug's risks. Although this didn't run afoul of ethical standards at the time, it absolutely would be unethical today. However, in spite of their ethical problems, these trials proved that the drug that Pincus was developing worked. You could also make the same general point about basically this entire podcast. The suffrage movement that McCormick was part of largely excluded black women and other minorities. And Margaret Sanger had ties to the eugenics movement, which was really popular in the 20s and 30s. So basically, all of the things we are talking about today, including various things that were tried in Stanley's mental health care, had issues that were somewhere between between troubling and abhorrent a century later. In 1957, Enovid, which combines synthetic estrogen with synthetic progestin, was approved for use in regulating menstrual cycles. Of course, in regulating the cycle, it was also preventing ovulation. The FDA approved its use for this purpose as the first oral contraceptive in 1960. 
With that out of the way, McCormick turned her focus to the fact that MIT did not have adequate housing for female students. In 1968, women's residence Stanley McCormick Hall opened its doors. It was MIT's first residence hall exclusively for women, and it quadrupled the number of women students that MIT could house, bringing the number up to 200. The dormitory's dedication took place three months after McCormick's death at the age of 92. She died on December 28, 1967, of a stroke. Her financial contributions to the creation of the pill were, even then, largely forgotten. Her death was not even reported as news. However, in her will, she gave sizable donations to the Planned Parenthood Federation and to Stanford University to assist women who wanted to get a medical degree. She also made contributions posthumously to numerous civic organizations, as well as several that were devoted to art and music. She did really all of this in Stanley's honor. She also established the Catherine Dexter McCormick Library to be housed at the Planned Parenthood Federation offices in New York. And that is Catherine Dexter McCormick. That's another one of those people, and it comes up often in this podcast, where I hear their life story and think I'm the laziest person alive. Like, they just <laughs> did so much work. You and I have joked uh, off off mic about how this episode on Catherine De- Dexter McCormick and one that is going to run around the same time, you may all have heard it already, about the Declaration of Sentiments. Uh, both could have been two-parters because they're so involved. But then we would have had three two-parters in a month that were all about suffrage, which we love this topic. But uh, our listeners like variety, which is why why we we did not do it that way. However, the book that I got about Catherine Dexter McCormick is enormous. It's it's like, how long is it? I'm going to pick it up on mic here and flip <laughs> through it. Uh, okay, it's only 300 pages long, but it seems enormous. <laughs> uh, it's got a whole, it's got so much more information in it about, um, about Stanley's mental health care, about uh, various friendships and relationships that she developed with other women in the suffrage movement, like just the, so much other stuff that we did not get into. Um, she's pretty amazing. That book is called Catherine Dexter McCormick, Pioneer for Women's Rights. Um, and, uh, oh, a thing that I was working around to is that one of the things that is funny to me about having done this episode and, and the one that is coming out either already or soon uh, about the the Declaration of Sentiments and the, the Seneca Falls Convention is, uh, I wonder how those women's lives may have been different had they had access to contraception because so many of them had seven or eight children and more than likely they had seven or eight children because they had no choice about methods of not having children that were actually reliable and effective. So anyway, uh, that's Catherine Dexter McCormick. I also have listener mail. <laughs> I have listener mail is not about Catherine Dexter McCormick. It is about moonshine. It is from Jax. Jax says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm a proud alum of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. So your episode on moonshine reminded me of a cultural reference. If your listeners live in the South and or watch SEC sports, they are probably aware of the unofficial UTK fight song, Rocky Top. However, the band only plays the chorus at games and the verses are full of strange mountain culture. In the second verse, there is a direct reference to federal agents looking for stills. 
You touched on the legal moonshine business, which I personally watched explode while working in two different local liquor liquor stores. Popcorn Sutton was a longtime producer of moonshine, and after his death, his recipe is now being used for legal corn whiskey. It has caused a lot of debate uh, on the area's cultural history and what is appropriate representation. I could go on for a while about the idea of, quote, poor, stupid Southerners as a stereotype, but y'all have addressed this, and thank you. I will say that a lot of people still get their shine from some local producer and guard their sources jealously. Personally, the best I've ever had was produced in a very urban area of Knoxville by a passionate advocate of the community and mountain heritage, and one of his best flavors was rosemary. Go figure. And and then he sends a, a little note that's less related about things that he do, he does while listening. Thank you, Jax. One of the reasons that I wanted to uh, read this email is that I actually wanted to talk about Popcorn Sutton in that episode. Um, he was a character uh, and was very well known, like, in the Maggie Valley area of North Carolina and parts of North Carolina and Tennessee. And there are lots of videos of him and documentaries of him about his moonshining. And one of the reasons that we didn't, I didn't end up putting him in the, in the final outline was that it's a very sad story. He, he uh, was... He had a, he had a raid. There was a federal raid on his operation, and he had already been on house arrest, and he was sentenced to prison, um, and he wound up taking his own life rather than returning to prison. And it was just such a huge story with so many layers to it that I could not find a good place to put it in the already long story of Moonshine that we had uh, in that. The other thing was I went looking around for a video of him to share on our social media after that episode came out because I had kind of wanted to tell a little bit of his story but couldn't find a place for it. And I could not find any in which he was not cussing a blue streak because that is how he talked. (laughs) Um, And the one that I did find is a very lovely photo essay which has a picture of his tombstone on it which has what many people consider to be the mother of all swear words on it. So like even then, <laughs> even on his tombstone, uh, he had a very, a very foul mouth full of foul language. Um, but anyway, he's a very interesting character and his, his story has a lot of parallels to the overall story of moonshine in the, that part of the, the Appalachian mountains. So uh, thank you again, Jax, for writing. If you would like to write to us, we are a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have an Instagram where we, where we are also History. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Put the words Planned Parenthood in the search bar and you will find how Planned Parenthood works that dispels a lot of misconceptions about the organization. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find show notes, an archive of every single episode we've ever done, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.